This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, we've seen some increases in, well, whatever you want to call it, protesting, violence on the campaign trail. It's been escalating as we've gone along. The debates start tonight. French tonight, English tomorrow. There's a lot of work that goes into this for the candidates. What will be on the agenda? We'll break it down for you. And what about natural immunity? So as you know, on Monday night, uh, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau had a bunch of gravel thrown at him following another very raucous, rambunctious, profane, um, heated campaign stop. This one was in London, Ontario, but he had an earlier campaign stop about a week prior that um, security said had to be shut down because the risk was too high. Um, and the rhetoric and the outrage and the protest has been building and building and building and building. And the concern here is not that he had gravel thrown at him, obviously. Uh, first of all, that is assault, and I, I hope London police are investigating, but it's the escalation that we need to be aware of. And, like, political protests are not new. They happen in every campaign. And, and yes, Maxime Bernier had some lunatic come up and crack an egg over his head uh, in Saskatoon last week. That man should be in jail as well. But when you see what's happening, it's getting more organized, it's getting more regular, and it's getting more extreme. And for me personally, it's concerning. I don't want to go down that road. You only need to look to the United States as to where that can lead us with the kind of rhetoric and divisiveness, vitriol, and all in out fighting, rioting. Where does it lead? We know. And uh, I don't want to see it happen here. So the question is... Is that where we're headed? To talk about this, we have Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who's an assistant professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Dr. Carvin, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I mean, my way off base here, I mean, the thing to me isn't the the one-off incidents. It just seems to me, having seen a lot of election campaigns, that this one seems to be a little more organized, regular, and escalating. I don't think you're wrong, and I think we're seeing the results of that right now. And I think it's just a confluence of several factors that are coming together. In the first instance, we've had um, a pretty vocal and you know increasingly organized anti-vax movement in Canada. Right? Mm-hmm. These are people who found themselves. You know, this movement existed well before this election, of course, and well before COVID, to be honest. Um, but they've they've become more active and mobilized. Um, throughout uh, the past, you know, 18 months. And in addition to that, we uh, one of the things that really concerns a lot of researchers in this space is the extent to which far-right movements or far-right extremist movements are looking at the anti-vax movement as a recruiting ground, right? So we're seeing, like, groups like, uh, you know, what used to be the Proud Boys sure. and is kind of morphed into different areas, uh, and some, you know, neo-Nazi groups, some, you know, uh, far-right groups, they are looking at these anti-vax protesters as, you know, these are potential recruits for our movement. So we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing those elements 
sneak into this. I'm not saying every anti-vaxxer is a Nazi, but right. I am well, saying that they're seen as, you know, uh, people who could be recruited for um, kind of long-term hate movements or even political violence. And then I think the third thing is really um, social media just does not crack down on these uh, movements themselves. They keep saying, oh, yes, well, we're, you know, trying to promote good information and we're taking it down. They're not. Like, they're just not, right? And the result of this, I mean, the Toronto Star had a very good investigation into this um, this week, Um Alex Boudelier, I think, was the reporter, and he wrote about how, um, you know, all these, you know, organizers, they're they're using Telegram, which is um, a very highly encrypted app to basically uh, mobilize. But, I mean, all of these actors have Facebook pages, Mm -hmm. they'll have Instagram accounts, and that's really frustrating. Uh, Someone like me is like, you know, why... You know what? I believe in freedom of speech, but I don't believe in, you know, that's, it's not absolute, right? And this is, this is the result. So I think all of these factors together, plus, you know, just, um, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on Alberta, but, you know, maybe Trudeau wasn't so popular out there to begin with, um, <laughs> has come together in really negative ways. So I think that this is something that's here. It's growing or, you know, I've seen polls out this morning that suggest the People's Party of Canada, which is a very anti-immigrant, anti-vax party. Um, you know, they're, they're polling at 9% now in, in some yeah, cases. They're up, yeah. And it's not great, right? So it's, um, it, it, it's not good. That's, that's basically my assessment. It's not good. Yeah, and I think you, <laughs> you're welcome. You, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think you mentioned a couple of important things that I want to talk a little bit more about. And I think one of them, you know, like you're saying, the anti-vax and the anti-mask has been rolled into this. And I firmly believe if it wasn't masks and it wasn't vaccines or it wasn't vaccine mandates or whatever the case may be, there would be another cause. It's not necessarily the cause. I think you're right. It's the it's the provocateurs. It's the people interested in uh, inhabiting the extreme and the fringe and drawing more people to them will latch onto any issue they can see as divisive and amplify it and turn the people who are genuinely concerned about vaccines or masks or whatever and bring them into this anti-establishment movement. I, that's how I see it. Yeah, so I think that's actually a really good point. And yeah, so this movement did, in in a certain sense, exist prior to COVID-19, and that was the Yellow Vest movement, um, right? So we're seeing yes. a lot of the people who are uh, very active, not all of them, but a lot of them who are very active in the Yellow Vest movement. And just to remind your audience, the Yellow Vest movement was, um, you know, they were talking about, you know, conspiracy theories like the UN is trying to, like, replace our borders with global governments and bring in migrants uh, to replace white people and, you know, all these kinds of crazy ideas. Um, they were, um, you know, they were, the, you know, they tried to latch onto what I think was a fairly legitimate um you know, concern about like pipeline workers in sure, Alberta. Yeah, like, like, that's, like you can be, you can be like upset about pipelines. Like I get that, right? Like I get that. Um, you know, I come from Oshawa. I come from that kind of blue collar town. I get the concerns that are there. But this was, you know, they tried to latch on to that grievance they about the pipelines it. and things. Like, they caught. That's exactly right. And so, and this, the same actors in that movement have gone to into anti-vax. They've just been far more successful, I think, because COVID is all we've heard about for two years. And I imagine there's a lot of people who are sick of it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, and I and the concern, obviously, is it's con- it's a continued escalation, right? We see it more and more. 
Yeah, exactly. And this is what concerns me. It's like, okay, before like, we're shouting down, like, you know, you would see these, like, you know, yellow vest protests and be hanging outside City Hall. There's, like, four of them, and they look kind of sad in the rain or whatever. Um, but, you know, this is, it's it's kind of gone from that to, okay, now we're, uh, okay, we're shouting down people. Okay, now we're okay with kind of swarming their bus. Okay, now, um, you know, let's throw rocks at someone's head. Yeah. Let's, you know, we've already seen politicians uh, on this campaign having to wear bulletproof vests. I mean, that's not okay, right? Like, this is this is just not what you want. And, you know, you talked a bit about the, the January 6th and what's happened south of the border. And I do, we, we you know, we are so influenced so by influenced. what happens down there. There was a study that was done um, out of, I believe, McGill. And what they found was for every tweet that a Canadian tweets out, they're likely to tweet 10 uh, tweets that come from, or retweet 10 American tweets. Wow. Right? So those narratives that carry in the United States come to Canada, whether we like it or not. And that has an impact on the discourse, but also the way we see our political issues, right? And we, you know, we, we see this all the time, whether the gun debate, the abortion debate, all these different kinds of things. What's happening in the U.S. comes here, even healthcare, right? Sure. So I think one of the things that, you know, I'm concerned with is that what we saw out of that January 6th movement is that people felt a good way to express themselves was to physically attack their political opponents, right? We're going to physically storm this and take it over because we believe in freedom and you don't. And that's the way that was portrayed. And it's really scary. And I worry that's what we're seeing is that people are saying, I disagree with you. And rather than taking that to the ballot box, I'm going to now physically attack the people who I think are oppressing me. And this is dangerous. It is. It is. It's a slippery slope. Uh, Dr. Carvin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. Tonight is the French-English debate. Uh, Tomorrow night we have the English debate. You can hear it here live on the Chorus uh, Network starting at 7 o'clock. Debates can be a key part of the campaign. They're certainly billed as that prior to uh, them happening, but they don't always live up to the hype. There's no doubt they can be a turning point. Sometimes they are. If a candidate can, you know, land that really elusive but much sought after knockout punch, and given the tightness of this race and the heat that's being generated around it, we could see a real fight play out this week in prime time in front of Canada. So let's get some details on what we can expect. Randy Boswell is a Carleton University journalism professor and a former Post Media News national reporter. Randy, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Uh, Happy to be here, sir. Um, This debate this week, it seems like the lead up to it, um, the conditions are right for perhaps some fireworks coming out in the next couple of nights, don't you think? I think that's fair to say. There's a lot at stake right now. Um, I think most of the pressure is actually on Justin Trudeau because, of course, he called this election, and um, uh, there's uh, still a pretty significant portion of the population that can't understand why he called the election. And uh, the polls make it pretty clear that, um, uh, you know, the, the support has been slipping uh, for his party, uh, even as it, uh, in, you know, incrementally is growing uh, for the Conservatives. So he's got a lot at stake here, um, a lot riding on these debates, and 
if there's pressure on anybody to land that knockout punch that we're talking about, it's on Trudeau. Right, and that's that's where the the focus will be for sure. But Aaron O'Toole, uh, you know, he's sort of done really, really well in the first half of this campaign, and anybody who's in front knows that the people behind him are going to be taking shots at him too, so he has to be ready for this. He, he does have to be ready for it, and of course he had a pretty serious stumble this week, um, in the last, or at least in the yeah. last few days, with the... Um, uh, the uh, assault style uh, rifles policy um, uh, of the uh, of the conservatives. So, um, you know, he's he's become more vulnerable. I would say within uh, the last few days because of that stumble, um, they took a policy plank from their um, uh, from their conservative platform and reversed it, and that has opened up an opportunity for the others to question what else is not. Um, uh, you know, can't be trusted about uh, O'Toole. Um, let's talk a bit about what goes into this. We know we won't see much of the candidates over the next couple of days on the campaign trail mm-hmm. because they'll be in the infamous debate prep, right? They'll be <laughs> doing their debate prep. What goes into that? I mean, it's pretty intense, isn't it? It is, and they basically go through scenarios where they get grilled, um, you know, in their weakest, um, you know, most vulnerable places to try and make sure that they have um, you know, uh, defensible arguments um, that they can deflect those attacks. Um, uh, it, I mean, they don't, none of these leaders at this point need any help in rehearsing the somewhat tired lines <laughs> that yeah. they have been giving on the campaign trail. That they've got down pat because they're doing it every day in front of cameras and, uh, in, you know, in front of uh, crowds um uh to the extent that they can be in the pandemic but the main thing that they are working on is to try and make sure that a they don't get um surprised by you know a left hook from uh one of their rivals and also that they can identify a moment where they can pounce yeah. on a rival um waiting for you know the whatever it might be a weasel word or some opening that is created by a rival where they can then say, ha-ha, boom, and then, uh, you know, expose the hypocrisy or, um, uh, you know, uh, take a moment where um, a rival has sort of, uh, you know, given a shaky answer to something and, uh, and try to push them further down that rabbit hole. And when we talk about the prep, I mean, it, no detail is left unexplored. I mean, they go right down to what tie you're going to wear, how you walk out, where you stand, how you stand. I mean, it, every detail is choreographed. Yeah, and I think that that is maybe overblown a little bit because um, uh, ultimately, um, of course, people get impressions. Um, are you comfortable in front of the camera? Um, you know, do, do you look like a serious person, uh, you know, in terms of the clothes you're wearing and so forth? Um, you know, you, you may remember Stockwell Day, um, you know, holding up a prop in one of his debates. Um, and, and that did not play well because everyone knew he was breaking the rule and he looked kind of amateurish. Um, and so I think that um, the main thing, though, ultimately will be, and this is the only big takeaway that voters will have, is whether or not one of them is made to look um, off balance. If right. they are thrown by a uh, an attack and they don't have a good response that's the thing that people take away those are the things that are going to be run over and over again on the highlights uh, through social media 
It's when somebody scores a direct hit, and that's the thing that will, you know, have uh, a, a big impact. And it doesn't always happen, by the way. Sure. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's happened a few times, memorably in Canadian politi- recent Canadian political history, um, but it, it, isn't, it isn't bound to happen. And you make a good point, especially with the French debate tonight. For a lot of us in English Canada, mm-hmm. we won't be watching the debate. We won't get the full picture of what the debate is. A lot of it will be based upon social media reaction, upon punditry and analysis. So what we actually take away from this debate will actually be filtered through other people, right? Yeah, and I think that's actually, you know, a good a good process um, because... You know, analysts have to, you know, observe what has actually happened, and they have to, um, you know, have, they have to make credible arguments about who won the debate or who lost the debate. Yep. Um, they have to make, um, you know, persuasive points about what the turning point of the debate might have been, um, who who fared well, who had difficulty. Um, and, of course, that gets um, shaped and reshaped by public opinion, especially these days because of the influence of social media. Um, and I, I think ultimately what emerges from all of that is probably a fairly reasonable impression about, um, you know, how the debate might affect the overall race. Um, uh, and I think that that process is probably um, a, a good one. And that's, that's part of how democracy works. People, you know, mull it over and think about how other people have reacted to it and then come to a conclusion. Ultimately, though, basing your conclusions on a debate is not possibly, maybe not the best way to go about this. I mean, if you think about it, it's theater, and in a largely manufactured theater, and it, it's sort of a snapshot. And as you say, you can have a candidate who uh, gets put on the back foot and has a hard time handling uh, an attack from an opponent or something like that, and that can become the takeaway of how they handled their entire campaign when maybe looking at the campaign in its whole and the platform and things like that is a better way to make up an opinion. Yeah, um, I think I said, as I said in a column recently, um, you know, a a serious political observer would say, don't pay too much attention to the knockout punch or what appears to be the most dramatic moment in the debate, because, you know, this is a, this is a race for someone to become the prime minister and the head of a, you know, a serious government of a, of a, of a major nation. Um, why would we want to make our judgment based on, you know, 10 second TV clip of somebody being caught off guard. Um, it's true. Um, you know, that isn't necessarily a great way to choose your prime minister. Um, but you know what? We're human and we observe these people in, uh, you know, under the, under the heat and pressure of the spotlight of a TV debate and we expect them to be able to handle it. And so, um, if someone falters, uh, I don't think anybody is going to forget, you know, Brian Mulroney pointing his finger at John Turner and said, you had an option, sir, or people are not going to forget um, uh, Jack Layton, you know, cornering Michael Ignatiev on his bad attendance record right. in the House of Commons. I mean, those were direct hits. And the big problem in those instances was that the person being attacked did not have a good response. And so they had an impact on the overall race. So, um, no, we shouldn't necessarily be overly influenced by these moments, but guess what? We're going to be influenced by them. We are, because like I say, it's drama. It's drama in prime time. Canadians will be watching, and if somebody can get in that one scoring blow, it can mm-hmm. really change the tide. Yeah, 
Yeah, and there's a lot of issues in play right now. I mean, that's the thing. Um, you know, uh, uh, vaccination remains an issue that Justin Trudeau is desperate to create a wedge out of. Um, uh, obviously, uh, the assault uh, weapons issue um, uh, is going to be uh, front of mind for O'Toole's rivals. Um, and, and there are a lot of very close races happening across the country, and, and there are, um, you know, dynamics of this moment in the campaign. Progressive voters, uh, largely lumped together, represent about two-thirds of the voters. That's people who might vote Liberal, uh, NDP, or Green. Um, and they're trying to weigh whether or not they're concerned that the Conservatives are about to form a government, and that means traditionally NDP voters might actually switch to the yep. Liberals because they think that the Liberals have the best shot stopping the Conservatives. And um, at the same time, Aaron O'Toole also has to be thinking about whether or not his policies, many of which seem to have shifted toward the center in this in this campaign, are creating risk for him at the other end of the political spectrum where, um, you know, the People's Party of Canada may be um, uh, growing, and there is some evidence that that's happening. So there's a lot of um, a lot of moving parts here, and the leaders have to demonstrate that they are aware of all of those pitfalls and opportunities. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Randy, thank mm-hmm. you so much for the insight. I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That is Randy Boswell, who is a Carleton University journalism professor professor and a former Post Media News national reporter. Natural immunity. Where does that fit in to um, our response, our plan, and where we go going forward? Now, the big takeaway here, okay, let's make it clear before we get into this discussion. I'm not sitting here saying acquiring immunity from COVID naturally is a good strategy. Um, There are some people who have developed COVID, recovered, and we know they have natural immunity now. So all I'm saying is, how do we calculate that group of people and that sort of immunity into the way we look at this overall? And as I said, you know, uh, I'm planning a trip to the States, and I was taking a look at the requirements to enter the United States. The U.S. says... In order to enter our country, you need to have proof of a negative test taken within the last 72 hours or documentation showing that you have had and recovered from COVID in the last three months, six months, one of those two. So, I mean, they're saying that immunity is, is, is good enough. Um, in Canada, when we talk about um, vaccine passports, vaccine certificates, um, traveling, anything like that, it's all about vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with the vaccine passports, but at the same time, there could be some consideration for natural immunity because the latest science shows us that the natural immunity that you develop after infection is probably the strongest. It's actually stronger than people who are vaccinated. So what do we do with it? Um, Let's have that discussion now. We are going to chat with Charlotte Tallon, who is a researcher of immunology at the Karolinska Institute. Charlotte, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, I mean... Okay, first of all, it's Israel, Israel, Israel. That's what we're talking about here. And, and that seems to be sort of become the, the test subject for much of the world because they were so far ahead on the vaccination and things like that. But this data that we're going to be talking about, it, it's all based primarily on what we're seeing in Israel, right? Yes, Israel is closely watched because they were first out. And they do have some very important data. So 
um, uh, we're, we're watching them closely, yes. So what we're learning as we study the data out of Israel, that it shows us that natural immunity may actually be the most robust immunity to COVID-19. Is that true? Uh, yes, the study you're referring to uh, came out as a preprint uh, a few weeks ago, which means it's not it's not been reviewed by other scientists. So we need to keep in mind that it's only a preprint, and yeah. it needs to to go through that that investigation, of course. Uh, and yes, that that study does suggest that natural immunity is superior to vaccine vaccine immunity, and I think that's not too surprising because because natural immunity is good. But I think, as you were saying, infection is not an option, no. and that's the most important message. And I think people have read that paper or versions of the paper, and they've understood that let's wait to get infected because that seems better than, 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 than getting vaccinated, which is completely wrong, of course. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, let's talk about the science around natural immunity and why it makes sense that it may be stronger than the immunity that you get from the vaccine. What's the reasoning for that? Well, uh, one one reasoning is that if you have if you have the if you are affected with the virus, you're exposed to the to the to, to all the, the parts of the virus. Whereas the, the current vaccines are are, are subcomponent vaccines, so they only they only expose you to the spike protein, which is a part of the virus. So you will get through the vaccine, you will get a, 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 a very, you will get a very potent immunity, and we've seen that. But it's also maybe perhaps a bit more narrow than than, than natural immunity from the infection. When it comes to the natural immunity, I mean, there's still a lot of question marks, right? Like, we don't know how long it lasts. Yeah. We don't know, and not everybody develops it to the same extent. I mean, there's still, it's not 100% certain, is it? Absolutely, you're right. It's, there, there's a, a high variability, and, and we need much more research, much more data to know exactly how long it will last and how it works towards the different variants coming around. Mm-hmm. So I think the best bet is to get vaccinated, even if you've had the infection. And we do see there's some some really strong data, uh, and we do see that even in, in people who've had the infection, the immune response will will rise uh, tremendously after being vaccinated. So I think the best option is to get the vaccine, whether or not you've had the the infection. Yeah, it, it shows that that's probably the best in terms of the immunity yeah. that you develop is being vaccinated after having COVID. Right, that's where you get the strongest immunity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, don't go get COVID. That's not a, a plausible strategy. You shouldn't be thinking, oh, that's what, I mean, I mean no. course, we can't say that enough. Um, but I, I'm wondering, you know, when I when I take a look at the way it's, it's handled, and uh, have you had a chance to look at different places around the world? Because, I, you know, I, I look at the United States and Canada, and natural immunity really doesn't get a mention in terms of um, any sort of, you know, recognition as you've probably you've got immunity mm-hmm. to the disease. It does in the United States in a lot of places. What about other places around the world? Where does it fit into the whole fabric of our response and immunity passports and all of that? Yeah, so some countries in Europe, uh, Italy, uh, Germany, France, they, they do consider natural immunity to be sufficient enough in some, some where you can have, if you had an infection, they only recommend one dose, for example. Yeah. In Israel, a prior, prior infection counts for your, your green pass, your green passport. But I think there's a risk in that because we don't, it, it's, it's quite difficult to, to be sure who's had it and has, who hasn't yeah. had it because the tests out there are not very good, some of them. And, and it's not always easy to know if you've had it. And it also depends on how long ago you had it and how, perhaps how sick you were, your age. It, it, there's a high variability. So I think 
and to 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 tell a whole country to not get vaccinated if you've had the infection that will interfere with your vaccination campaign right and the most important thing is to vaccinate as many as possible globally because you know the virus mutates as they replicate um, and the scenario we have in some countries like in the u.s where we have a low vaccine coverage and we have a high transmission rate that's the perfect window the virus loves that to mutate and the most of the mutations don't really have any consequences but you know once in a while we do get a, a variant which will be more infectious so will cause a more severe illness or maybe also the ability to escape both the vaccine and natural immunity and also to not respond to treatment. And we don't want to get there. And as no. of today, the vaccines that we have, they do work. Uh, so it's kind of a race between the vaccine and the variants right now. And we need to really try to, to vaccinate as many as possible, regardless of whether you had it, because that's the easiest way. Right. And, and as you say, that gives you that degree of certainty. We, we know that yeah. you've been vaccinated, so we know what we can expect in terms of your immunity. Um, yeah. We don't know with natural immunity, and so you, it removes that layer of, well, we're not it's 100%. It's the safest sure. card. Definitely, yes, it is. It is. Um, thank you so much for your time. Doc, I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. That is Charlotte Tallinn, who is a researcher in immunology at Karolinska Institute. And it is an interesting discussion, and I think she's right. I think when you take a look at jurisdictions that are saying, you know what, we're just going to stick with you have to be vaccinated, it's because it's the easiest course of action. But as she said, there are countries in Europe where if you have had COVID, they don't say you need to have two vaccines. One will do um, because you have the natural immunity and then throw the vaccine on top of it. Um, they consider that good. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.